your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Welcome, everybody. Today we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Barbara Doyle, and she is a self-employed clinical consultant for people with disabilities. She provides training, technical assistance, and consultative services to educators, specialists, families, school staff, child welfare workers, adult service providers, and others. She is a frequent keynote and topic presenter at conferences and seminars, and I believe, I hope she's committed to being at Autism One for next year because we really want to have her there. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Betsy. I have to start by telling my story because um, I just think this whole autism world is so small, and it, it always <laughs> blows me away how things come back. And about seven years ago, I was living in northern Illinois, and my son was in a school district with truly one of the greatest special ed directors I've ever known. Her name is Johanna White. She's just a really great lady. And Johanna had just been transferred to our district, and I was very defensive without giving her a chance, and I really barked at her for not knowing more about floor time in a kind of a green span therapy way. And she said, no, I, I don't know about it, but I will learn. And Joey was really, my son Joey was really severe at that time, and classroom settings were not working for him. So I was driving 45 minutes a couple times a week to a wonderful floor time therapist, Michelle Riccomato, for what I considered was the only productive thing that he did all week. And Johanna told me not only did she want to go with me to therapy, but she wanted to take an autism specialist, Barbara Doyle, with her. I had not heard of you, Barbara, at that time, but I was welcoming you to come along. And it was a great experience. Joey went on to receive floor time through the school district shortly after. And, Barbara, I have to say, you know, my mind was jelly at that time, so I have no <laughs> idea what your first impression was of me. <laughs> I, I do remember at that time you sitting in the back with Joey on the drive back and kindly but firmly keeping him in his car seat. <laughs> so we flash uh, flash ahead forward to about uh, a month ago when Terry Oranga with Autism One, who's in charge of the radio and such, she basically is in charge of anything I do on the radio, asked me if I would interview you. And I hadn't heard your name for so, so such a while. Um, Strangely enough, it was a day after I had spoken to Johanna, who I hadn't spoken to for years, and so here you are. So I'm so excited. Um, I want people to know that this is my tie with you, and, and I was definitely impressed with your calmness and the way that you work with these children and how you do consult with many school districts, and that is really one of the great parts of your consulting business as well. You do work with school districts, correct? Yes, I do. I work with a lot of districts. Um, it's starting to be across the country now um, because I'm, I'm kind of getting a reputation as the queen of practical um, and the queen of a lifetime. Um, some people get too focused on small details and immediate goals, or they suggest things to teachers and staff and families that they can't actually do 
because it's just not practical. So being a family member of people with special needs, I really um, look at the whole lifetime of the person and focusing on what's the most important. And I think the calmness comes because I, I just have a sense of feeling for this is a fully human person here who's doing the very best they can, and I strive to not take things personally. And that would be one thing that listeners could help um, their teachers and, and staff and other family members understand is that we're all working and living with the brain we have at the moment. And, and as we improve, certainly our ability to cope will improve, but we really shouldn't take things personally like the wrong tone of voice or selecting the wrong words from a person who has autism, which is essentially a social communicative disorder. Right, that's a very, very good point and something that I've been working on. You know, the more I get out, and, and you know what this is like, the more you get out in the spotlight, the more you're susceptible to criticism. And it, it's, um, it, sometimes you just want to crawl into your room and never go out because mm-hmm. then you wouldn't have to worry about taking things personally. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, it's, a, it's very good advice because you don't know what somebody's saying to you and giving, giving all the, um, you don't know the background on it. Mm-hmm. One of the big questions that I, I want to just touch on, we, we're not going to talk a long time about schools, but um, I have a hard time sometimes with my patients or even my own situation kind of knowing what the school should be responsible for because mm-hmm. I hear you speak and um, I, I get filled with great ideas and yet, you know, his teacher may get gun-ho, but I mean, how much are they going to really be able to follow that through? And there's all kinds of litigations going on right now between mm-hmm. parents and schools. And I have such sympathy for schools that people will know from my shows that I, you know, they say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, they they create their own problems. Like, But I do, because most of the people that I'm dealing with are the teachers who aren't getting paid a tremendous amount of money, who are doing the best that they can based on the education that they have. Mm-hmm. So... Should we take it as a responsibility to help educate these teachers? Mm-hmm. Where, where does this come? Where do, where do we start? Well, I think the the first thing to acknowledge is that the biggest problem in human services is that it's full of humans, and that um, everybody has stress both at their work and at home. And I really like it that you um, understand that most teachers are doing the very best they can with the tools that they've been given. They're doing a very hard job. They could make more money running a fast food business, and they could certainly have less stress. But um, they really are dedicated, and especially our classroom teachers, our general education teachers, who never went to school to teach special ed kids, but who are now special ed teachers. And so I think we do need to understand and expect that they may be undertrained. And one of the things we can do is go to our school boards, go to our principals, go to our special ed directors as parents or as other uh, concerned professionals and say, here is something I could do. I could um, go to the local community college and make a 30-minute DVD about understanding young children with autism or high schoolers with autism or whatever, and you could post it on your website. Or I could hold uh, an informal meeting and just talk to parents and teachers together. One thing that's really important is we have to stop doing parent training and teacher training. That's, it's a really bad idea. We need to train everybody together because we've created such a barrier. No wonder parents and teachers can't talk to each other effectively when they sit down. 
the teachers went to one training and learned one set of things, and the parents went to another training and learned another set of things. And so when I go to school districts to teach, one of my requirements is that if we're having a training, we'll train anybody who comes in the room. And teachers don't feel like I'm bringing thing, making things too simple for them, and parents don't feel like I'm making things too hard for them. We need to make more information accessible to everybody. But what the school is responsible for is to be effective and to use strategies that actually result in people learning. And that when people aren't learning, when the children are not learning or growing across all domains, the school is also responsible not to blame anybody for that, not to say, well, he's not learning because he's not trying, or he's not learning because his mother overindulges him, or he's not learning because he doesn't want to. And so one of the things that I teach parents to do is to recognize when blame is being dished out and not dish it out yourself, <laughs> um, but, but to recognize when somebody is making a statement that sounds like something's your fault and then say, let's talk about that statement and let me be clear that it, it felt like you were blaming my child for not making progress and is that really your intention? And sometimes people will will have that kind of blaming thought or feeling, but until it's actually put on the table and acknowledged, they don't even realize they're doing it. So um, we really don't want to have that kind of blaming. We want schools to be um, responsible for effective teaching that results in learning across all domains. And if the child's not learning, then we schools are responsible to change what they do and your example about Johanna White was so perfect. I, in fact, visited her floor time program that's now in their preschool program um, last year. And that's a remarkable change that she did. And the reason she effected that change was because she realized that if she changed what the school was doing, she would be able to have the results that she wanted, which was more learning across all domains. And really the job of the school, um, despite the emphasis on testing and tests right now, the real job of education for everyone is to create safe and contributing citizens of the world. And that's the main thing. And in order to do that, we've got to help schools focus on priorities. Some things turn out to just be much more important than other things across a lifetime. And so when parents come in and they want a... 200-page IEP, (laughs) you know, I get worried because, yes, of course I want their son or daughter to learn every little thing and, and, you know, have all of these goals, but how is a person who teaches 30 people a day or a special ed support person like a speech and language person who has a caseload of 40 or 50 or 60 kids, how are they supposed to remember all these hundreds of goals? They can't because they're only human. And so we have to, as families, we need to figure out what our priorities are and then convey those. And one mom I know, every month or so, she just takes an index card and she writes down three or four priorities that are important priorities for her, for her child at that time, and she just gives it to the teacher. And the teacher puts it on her desk and she looks at it a couple times a day and she remembers that the priority is always safety that we don't want people to get in the habit of being unsafe, and the priority might not be compliance. Um, The priority might be that the child remain calm and self-regulated. A priority might be mental health, so that we're going to be careful so that 
um, our students feel good about themselves and their place in the world and have self-understanding. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that we really need to to do together. I think that's great. I wish every school district would hire you, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna take. A <laughs> I break. do too. <laughs> we're gonna take a break in a little bit, but I want people to know they can go to your website at any time as as we're doing the show. It's barbaradoyle.com. B a r b a r a d o y l e dot com. Barbara's phone number is two one seven seven nine three nine three four seven. We will give that number and email again. We'll be right back with Barbara Doyle. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies. And we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. Omega Institute is the country's leading center for holistic studies. Now you can experience selected workshops from Omega in the comfort of your own home. Join us for a live web broadcast with John Friend, the founder of Anasara Yoga. In this dynamic workshop, we learn a Hatha Yoga system that is a celebration of the heart and looks for the good in all people and all things. To find out more about our live web broadcast, log on to our website, www.eomega.org. That's www.eomega.org. Or call us at 800-944-1001. That's 800-944-1001. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup for the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Welcome back. We are here with Barbara Doyle, who is a consultant and works with a lot of schools. 
worked with a lot of families, but um, I had met her originally from working with a school many, many years ago, and she's gone on to, to be an amazing speaker and teacher of ways to work with those individuals who, um, who have autism all the way through anywhere in the spectrum, really. Um, going back to the school part, Barbara, are there any other ideas that you may have in making things work well with the, with the schools? Yes, um, one thing that I have had real great success with that has really helped teaming and planning is if families will ask their staff to come do a home visit. And maybe staff can come one at a time. You know, you have your whole team. You have a social worker and a psychologist and a speech and language person, maybe some classroom teachers. And at any age, if you invite them over to your house one at a time, just for half an hour or so, give them some cookies or some tea or something, and then let them just see your child or your adult child in the context of their family. It really makes, for teachers, uh, a tremendous difference to see a person in what I call their real life. When we all go to work, that's one part of our life, but our real life and our real selves are who we are at home. And so when we're getting to know somebody as a friend, we don't say, well, come visit me in my office necessarily, but we might say, come over to my house where we can get to really know each other. So I think home visits are great. On my website, I have a form that staff can use when they make a home visit so that they can record some important information. And one thing I always do if I take any notes during a home visit, I show them to the parents before I leave and say, is it okay with you if these are my notes? Because I think sometimes parents are thinking, well, you know, maybe she's thinking I didn't make the beds today, or she's thinking I'm, a, you know, I'm not well organized, and um, I haven't made a bed since 1976, so <laughs> I'm really not very critical about that stuff. And neither are all these working teachers. Um, right. But right. but I think it's important that we allow them to see our students in our homes. Um, and and so that we all become more real to each other. And the teacher or therapist is going to be um, more relaxed in your home, and it's going to contribute to the development of good relationships. Now, one thing is, though, never talk about people with autism in front of them like they're not there. So during a home visit or during a school visit, if the student with autism is present, and really this is just good respect for everybody, don't talk about them as if they're not there. Don't talk around them and above them. Um, even in, in, And perhaps especially if they're a person who does not speak or is considered um, not to have as many skills as other people have, we don't know what's going on inside of them. Couldn't agree more. And uh, right. Temple Grandin even talks about how she had her worst meltdowns when people would be talking around her. And it was very confusing and disorienting. It was like, am I not here? Why are they talking about me like I'm not here? And so it's a very respectful thing. So if the teachers make home visits, be sure to talk to them ahead of time and say, you know, let's just make this a social call just so we can know each other a little bit and so I can show you my favorite cookies that I get. And um, But let's not talk about Joey while he's right there. It, we can certainly talk to him and with him and make positive statements even if he cannot respond, but let's not talk in front of people like they're not there. It changes everything if families and staff make this rule. It's an excellent rule. I think that's fantastic advice. Um, I have a question, too, with the schools. Is how, how do you 
and we've talked about how busy they are, but how do you get them to communicate more with you? I, um, my frustration in, you know, first I had a notebook, and then usually at the beginning of the year there's a few things in the notebook, and then it gradually starts to become nothing. So then what I did is I did a daily check sheet so that all they really have to do is just kind of fill in the blank as mm-hmm. to what happened during the daytime. And even that starts to, now that we're into December, I, I've stopped getting that filled out too. The frustration for me is because my son does not or cannot come home and just tell me about everything that happened today. Mm-hmm. I can't, I don't know where he's at. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if some if the kid next to him had a meltdown today. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, and I want to know these things or if he may have been frustrated because he couldn't have the snack that the other kids had or those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is, do you find this to be a common problem with teachers and parents not being able to communicate? It, absolutely. And that, again, is the, is the problem, as you said. The caseloads are so large. There's so many demands. They have so much, so many different ways their attention is being pulled. But here's a couple of ideas that might help. One is that when students with autism arrive at school, they should be given a blank piece of paper. And on that paper, Somebody can write down just the main things that are going to happen that day. By the way, this will help with the whole problem of transitions, getting too stuck on your routines, uh, being considered inflexible, which people with autism are not really inflexible, but they do have trouble adjusting when something unexpected happens. So maybe we would write in that we're going to have math and then we're going to have art, and we would leave a space between each thing. Now, I don't recommend that people do this with a picture schedule or do this with something pre-printed because what we're trying to do is get the student to be able to adjust to changes that are unexpected and and not part of the routine. And this is going to tie back to the parents here in a second. So maybe we would also write in, like, when I come to do a consultation, you know, 10 o'clock, Miss Barbara will be here. You know, 2.15, early release today. We're going to go home early. We're going to get on the bus early. And whether the student can read or not read, whether the student understands or doesn't understand, you create this daily schedule list, and as you go through the day, you cross it off, and you write in something about that time. And so maybe the student would learn that at the end of math, he presents his sheet to the teacher, and she writes down, worked on times tables. And at the end of art, um, he would present that. And see, I, I like this because this is self-advocacy. We teach the student to get the information written down themselves. And, of course, they'll need some adult support to get in the habit of doing that. And the art teacher might write down um, made masks and um, uh, one child wet their, themselves and had to be taken out of the room and that upset him, mm-hmm. um, you know, or something like that. And at the end of the day, that piece of paper goes home. And now the family knows what did happen, what didn't happen, and any main thing that happened, Um, anything of significance, like we were going to go outside to play, but we had to have indoor recess, which for some of our students with autism disorders, they really don't like that change. They want to be outside. Um, And so um, if they just put indoor recess, did puzzles, was fine, um, or upset by indoor recess. Then that paper goes home at the end of the day, and moms and dads, who I've seen so many times on my home visits, they, they'll be there and they'll say, um, um, did you play outside today? No answer. Right. Did you play inside today? No answer. Right. 
Right. Did you play today? And see, I always say you, we have to be like lawyers. Don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Because <laughs> otherwise, how are you going to prompt the right response? That's right. So one way to communicate, and that's such a simple thing. It doesn't require a laminator. It doesn't require special equipment. We don't need any Velcro. We don't need any board maker. We start. We grab a piece of paper and a pencil, and that follows the student throughout the day. Now, the, the students who have the capacity and the capability um, and who can develop the capacity and capability can begin to do this for themselves because we aren't asking them to write huge sentences or students who have a communication device, a typing device. They can start typing in a little, keep a little file open all day of what happened and what didn't happen. So that's one way to get that communication better, and it's not hard. And once the teachers realize you don't have to run around looking for laminated pictures to right. do this, right. it, it it's so short. And once they realize that this is a way that families are going to be able to help them prepare for things, and at the bottom it might say, you know, remember tomorrow Halloween party, you know, so that you can help prepare your child. And then the other thing we have to do to communicate better with schools is get systematic. We can't do these things on the fly. You don't want to be communicating only with an aide or assistant who might be bringing your child to the car, although those are, uh, you know, lovely people that are doing a, a very difficult job for even less money. You may want to communicate with them about some things, but you really want to talk to the teachers. And so some districts are allowing for um, a, a web list or an email list to be created, and they have a way of coding the information so that no, if, if somebody accessed it, they wouldn't know what child it was, and they keep them very confidential, and they have good safe, safety and security. And so that maybe every Monday morning, the mother sends an email to everybody on the child's team and says, we went to the zoo, he was scared to death of the elephants, he loved the snake house, we were all surprised. Or, you know, he's got to go to the doctor on Tuesday and those kind of things to everybody on the team. And then we say to team members, on what day of the week are you going to send us your weekly missive, your weekly email? And I like it to be close to the end of the week um, so that parents can go over things about the weekend. But email is a wonderful way to communicate. Now, if people don't have email or they can't do that, because not everybody can, um, then you schedule weekly telephone calls. And you schedule it at a time that the teacher is going to be paid for her work anyway. Right. And, see, I don't like to schedule anything after teachers and, and staff are supposed to go home because they have children, they have adult children, they've got to pick people up, they've got to drop people off. So you would schedule it at, at 3.15 on Wednesday. I will call you at this number or you will call me at this number. We will take 10 minutes and 10 minutes only. And then the third way is to have more face-to-face -face meetings that are shorter and targeted. The reason we, we do so much time is devoted to meetings is because we have these long meetings where nothing gets done. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And so a, a short targeted meeting, maybe after three weeks of emailing, we say, can I meet with his third grade uh, teacher and the speech and language person for 20 minutes uh, one, one day this week, here's two sections of 20 minutes that I can be there. Here are the three things we need to discuss. So we've got to get organized. And families need to understand that if they aren't organized and they're going to sit in with, for two hours and just talk about things, pretty soon teachers are going to say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to meet with you. Yeah. And so we have to be targeted. And, and everybody doesn't have to meet every time. Right. 
So if I if I had a death in the family and I think that the student may need some support with that, I might just meet with the social worker and the and the general education teacher, or I might just meet with the psychologist. So I think those are some ideas. Those are great ideas. What what do you think the main skills are are that our teachers should be focusing on? Because you know, Joey knows the darn alphabet. <laughs> like, I just can't do any more of this alphabet and number stuff. I mean, he knows it forward and back and, and things such as that. Mm-hmm. And um, although my school district is, you know, working on right now for a lot of reading skills and things such as that, but I, I'm saying in the past, it was such a frustration. It was just like that was the, the main and only thing he was ever taught. Right. I have a friend whose son at the age of five had severely uh, affecting autism and Down syndrome and, you know, true cognitive troubles. I mean, it was very, very hard for the child to learn and self-regulate. And he would scream for hours. He came over to our house one time and he screamed for about two hours. And the family did everything they could to try to help him. And I later spoke with the mother because I didn't want to talk about the child in front of him. I said, what's on his IEP? And she said, colors, numbers, shapes. Now, here was a boy who couldn't say, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, I hurt somewhere. And so primary to everything is communication. No child should get a free, appropriate public education without being able to participate in it. And you can't participate in it if you can't communicate. One time I went to see Barbara Bush um, give a talk. I was at an assistive technology workshop out in Washington, D.C. And after Barbara Bush gave a talk, of of which I remember nothing because I was scared to death of the CIA and the Secret Service and the (laughs) FBI, and, you know, they had us keep our hands on the table, and, you know, I was so nervous I can't remember what she said. Um, but then a man came to the stage, and he, um, there was a microphone at the level of his knees, and he came out using a motorized wheelchair, and he turned and he faced us, and he obviously had some severe disabilities, and his body was moving in ways that made me think it was not under his control. And right. finally, one of his hands came up, and he pushed a button, and he gave a 20-minute lecture that it had taken him two weeks to program in, and he gave the lecture to like 3,000 people through a voice output device, and he said, I have always been in here. And a teacher recognized that I was in here and gave me voice output, and that was when I was 11 years old. Beautiful. It was so wonderful. So communication is is the core of relationships. Okay. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Barbara Doyle. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child 
who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The challenges we face day-to-day create physical, intellectual, spiritual, and emotional tensions, which affect the way we feel. Our body sends us signals, pain, stress, worry, that originate in how we think, feel, or behave. We're all a little crazy. Host, clinical social worker and therapist, Debbie Benching, and her expert guests look at the various influences that mold professional and public views of mental health, treatments, and methods to achieve emotional well-being. Learn to manage difficult circumstances in life and relationships relationships with integrity and competence express emotion more clearly and gain depth and choices that lead to mental and physical health in your relationship and your life tune into we're all a little crazy with debbie benching broadcasting each wednesday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america health and wellness channel we're all a little crazy clarity healing and change through personal growth Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Hey, welcome back. We're here with Barbara Doyle, and we're talking now about communication skills that um, need to be taught in the schools, I would ask her the question about what are the main skills we need to be focusing on, and I, I want to hit more of that. Can we talk more about communication skills? Sure. I just think that it's important for people to realize the importance of being able to communicate and that no one is too low to learn communicate to communicate. No one is too severely disabled to learn to communicate. We have to start with where the person is. And I have two expressions that sometimes help teams get focused. And the first one is the inability to communicate is not the same as having nothing to say. And the ability to talk is not the same as the ability to communicate. And then the third one is that everybody's communicating all the time. And so when people say he has no communication, then I wonder, have you ever taken a look at what he does? (laughs) Because everybody communicates by what they're doing. So if a student uh, slaps himself in the face, that's communication. Well, it's our job to find another way for him to send that message. Or if a student screams and runs out of the classroom, that is communication. But we need to find another way to help them send that message. And I love assistive technology and voice output. And one thing I would say to people is, If you use devices that talk for your student, your child, your adult child, that will not make them talk less. All the research that you can find will show that when people get to use voice output, they actually begin to talk more. And it makes sense because if I need a break and I have a little voice output device that costs $25 and when I push it, it says, I need a break, please. 
Um, and then somebody says, okay, take a break, turn this egg timer over. When all the sand's in the bottom, your break is over. I love egg timers with the sand in it because it's so clear. Right, right. Um, pretty soon when he needs a break and he has the thought, I need a break, and he pushes the button and it says, I need a break, then his brain makes the connection between what I was thinking and feeling and what these words are that I should be using. And so it really teaches people to use more words. And then even if they never develop speech, over time we can teach them to type those words. They can get more sophisticated devices. So just as the gentleman who spoke after Barbara Bush spoke, he said, when I started, they thought the most I would ever do would be able to choose from three options. He said, but now there is nothing I can't say. And I know we had a lot, some trouble with facilitated communication, but the Irish have ex- an expression, and that is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? There were problems with facilitated communication, but all of a sudden, because of those problems, people are not being taught to type on devices that, that can then speak for them or that other people could read. And the assumption is that if I'm not seeing a lot of communication on the outside, there isn't much going on on the inside. What type of devices are you finding to be the most useful? Well, it really depends on the child, but sometimes people will have a device, a school or a family will have a device, they'll try it with the child, and it doesn't work, and so they write in the record, we tried augmentative communication, we tried voice output, and it didn't work. There's lots of considerations that you have to look at. For one thing, you have to look at the motor patterns of the person. Can they point with one finger? Do they have to use their whole hand? You have to look at things like how do they scan? Um, Can they scan left to right and top to bottom? Or do they only scan by looking at the corners of something? And so you really have to individualize. And in Illinois, we're we're really fortunate to have the Illinois Assistive Technology Program. They have $2.5 million worth of technology that you can borrow. It's a try-before-you-buy program. And I'd like to get them for one of our shows. Oh, you surely can. I'll, um, we'll talk about that after. Right. And their email uh, or their website is iltech.org. I-L-T-E-C-H stands for Illinois Technology. Oh, okay. And if you go on their website, they can give you, it says all 50 states, and you push on that button and all 50 states have an assistive technology program that's funded by federal and state dollars. And so no matter where you're listening to this show from, your state has a program. Now, whether or not they have a loan program, I don't know, but we should really advocate that every state has a loan program. So everybody needs a voice. And for some people, we're using line drawings in the picture exchange communication system. Well, if you read that whole manual, (laughs) you'll see that over time we're supposed to get rid of the line drawings, make them smaller and smaller and smaller, and go to words, printed words. I like to start with printed words only, even in my two-year-olds, and move forward. If they don't learn to recognize and have a sight vocabulary for communication, then I'll add in another form of communication. But there's really no research to say that people have to understand pictures before they can understand print. And if you have pictures and laminators and board maker and everything, it can be really hard for people. But if a student is allowed to communicate with three-by-five cards that have words on them, um, that's going to be something that we can generate anywhere. 
Um, one thing that I worry about is that people with autism have a limited ability to identify an internal state and tell it to somebody else. And all the parents listening know that because they found out that the child had a ruptured appendix three days later or they found out the child had strep throat and never did anything that would indicate it. My nephew Tom has autism. He's 22 and he's um, a, a junior at California State University in Northridge. And his mother is Emily Island, who is a specialist in um, autism and people who speak Spanish. She's fluent in Spanish, and she's my sister. And so one time Tom was coming off the bus, and Emily looked at him across the, the street and said, oh, my gosh, he has a fever. And I said, what are you, psychic mother? How do you know you're nowhere near him? She said, see that line between his eyes? When he draws his eyebrows down, he has a fever. Well, it's very important for families to write down how they know if their child is sick. And then another great strategy for this kind of communication is to have a card that says HURT, H-U-R-T, in every room of the house, in every place in the school. And when anybody is hurt, you go and get that card and you put it on their HURT spot and you show them to show that to somebody else. So if their little brother falls down when he's roller skating and he comes in crying and his knee is, is bleeding, we would take the hurt card after we, of course, bandage him up and take good care of him mentally and physically. We would get the hurt card, put it near his knee, and help the child with autism come and get the hurt card, put it near the child's knee who is hurt, and then show it to the mother, show it to the father, to the sister, to someone else. And so it's, it becomes a metaphor for the person with autism that there's this thing called hurt. And when I feel that way, I've got to tell somebody where I hurt. So I have to identify it as hurt, and then I have to show it to someone. And one of the big problems we have is that when kids are hurt, we tell them they're not hurt. A child falls down, we say, you're okay, you're fine. <laughs> and I think the child with autism might be thinking, shoot, I thought this was hurt. You mean this is fine? You know, it could be a little confusing. That is, that is so good. Okay, well, my question comes, and we only have a short time until we have to take another break, so okay. we're going to have to carry this over. Okay. My big problem, because I um, I have a hard time sometimes in, in this if I have a hard time, the school has an even harder time differentiating between hurt and unregulated. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You, you know, as you know, Joey, from the past, he, he was a very, very sick child. Now, mm-hmm. he is much better now. He does not have painful episodes anywhere nearly as enough, but occasionally there's a food that may give him a stomach ache, um, something that is a little off and gives him a headache, mm-hmm. and it's but then he also will scream hysterically for, you know, he'll be watching a video and just start screaming hysterically. And, and the scream is not that much different than the I ate something bad scream. Mm-hmm. So we're going we're gonna to take a break before you answer this because okay. I know it's going to be a long answer. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, take, we'll take a quick break and then come right back with Barbara Doyle talking about um, regulation. Don't forget to visit our vet website, barbaradoyle.com. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue 
to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. Omega Institute is the country's leading center for holistic studies. Now you can experience selected workshops from Omega in the comfort of your own home. Join us for a live web broadcast with John Friend, the founder of Anasara Yoga. In this dynamic workshop, we learn the Hatha Yoga system that is a celebration of the heart and looks for the good in all people and all things. To find out more about our live web broadcast, log on to our website, www.eomega.org. That's www.eomega.org. Or call us at 800-944-1001. That's 800-944-1001. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. We are back with the wonderful Barbara Doyle and talking about regulation. So my question to Barbara before the break, although it was very long-winded and I'll make this short, <laughs> is how do you tell the difference between a child who is screaming because they're in pain and screaming because the world has just overwhelmed them. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can tell the difference necessarily. I think that when you're overwhelmed, it does hurt. I think if a sound comes on your video that is a sound that your brain can't process, it might be painful. And so it isn't so important. And if we were psychic, we could get a hotline. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't know. And so people say the same thing to me. They'll say, well, how do you know if he, if he can't do it or if he's refusing to do it? You don't. But there is a way of thinking about what's your least dangerous assumption. Your least dangerous assumption is that people don't throw themselves into total states of dysregulation on purpose and that it's no more fun for them than it is for the people around them. 
And so I would have a help me card. And, and just like the hurt card, if there's a help me card nearby, if somebody even shows the slightest sign of dysregulation, we would teach them to give me the help me card. And then I might give them a blanket to wrap up in, or I might teach them to go to their rocking chair and rock, or I might teach them to jump or to do some other input that an occupational therapist can help us figure out what the right combination is to bring themselves under control. What if the child doesn't want anyone around them when they're hurting? Well, one of the things we need to do is teach what's called a relaxation routine. And this is a routine that we establish that's portable and doesn't require, you know, certain uh, certain equipment or one routine for school, one routine for the car, one routine for home. And a relaxation routine is the idea of chaining together several things that the person finds very relaxing. Then we practice the relaxation routine when they're not upset. When a person is already upset or dysregulated, they cannot understand what you're saying to them and talking to them makes it worse now how do i know because every person who has autism whoever wrote a book or gave a lecture about having autism (laughs) says that when they're dysregulated they can't even hear you donna williams says she can see your mouth moving but she doesn't even know what you're saying and she's a very high functioning capable author lecturer person well wonderful woman um, and so one of the things we have to understand is that we practice the re- relaxation routine when it's not needed. And then we know how our kids love routine. So that if the first step of the routine is to wrap up tightly in a blanket or put hand lotion on or turn on certain soothing music or something like that, and then we, we chain together several relaxing things, all we have to do is start the routine prior to them being completely dysregulated and they may feel driven to complete that routine, which is then relaxing. The idea is you don't teach Lamaze to a woman in labor. <laughs> it's a little late. <laughs> and you don't, yeah, you don't teach self-regulation to someone at a time when they're dysregulated. Right. You have to prepare for it and practice. And I just um, I, I try to teach everyone that the person with autism is always doing the best they can at that moment, and even though we can't tell the difference between can't and won't, and we can't tell the difference between hurt and dysregulation, and sometimes those two go together, of course, um, what we can do is assume that the person needs our help and quiet support at those times, not to be taught at that time because you can't learn when you're upset, not to be consequenced, not to have something said to them like, well, if you don't get your act together, you're not going to get to do this. Those things are not helpful. They're not helpful for any human being. When a person is dysregulated, it's not helpful to raise your voice, talk a lot, demand that they say something, because they simply can't process that. And one thing I I wish that I could teach everybody in America is when people are very upset or dysregulated or having what we call in our family a meltdown, that is a time when you should not touch them unless there's imminent danger to a human being. So if there's a a student who has Down syndrome and autism or some other disorder and they're on the floor and they're not getting up, assume that they can't get up right now, that their brain-body connection has been made less helpful by this state of dysregulation, and don't try to pull them up and don't 
touch them and try to move them because that is how people get hurt. And our primary goal for everyone is that no one ever gets hurt because you can't take that back. When someone is hurt, you can't write write something down and say, well, he didn't mean to. I mean, we should if, if we know the person did not have the intent to hurt. Um, the only exceptions to that are, of course, safety for someone. So if you're trying to step out in front of a bus and you're dysregulated, I'm touching you because <laughs> I'm not going to let you get hurt and get hit by that bus. Or if you're trying to break glass or jump out a window, I know I'm going to contribute to you being worse in your dysregulation, but I can't let you hurt yourself. Or if you're going to throw a chair, I'm going to have to take the chair. Um, so in those cases, we have to do what, what is necessary in the moment to keep everyone safe. But otherwise, if a person's dysregulating, it's our job to have a calm, supportive presence. And if we do talk, to say things like Dr. Greenspan says, like just say, you're not in trouble. I'm with you. I'm not going to let anything bad happen. We're okay together with maybe 15 seconds of space in between each thing. And that gives the person the opportunity to know that they're not in trouble, which is going to make the dysregulation worse. Um, and it gives them the opportunity to know that when we need each other, we're there for each other. And that helps them regain their control faster. So those are just some ideas. I, I think it's bad to teach people to use restraint <clears throat> or physical intervention as a first-line defense for dysregulation. How many, you're talking about having a series of things. Mm-hmm. I can think, you know, I know in my son's situation, rocking, um, swings, those things are all very helpful in regulation. Mm-hmm. So how many a series and how long sh- should you do? For example, if you have, if you know rocking and swinging and um I'm trying to think of something else that might be helpful. Music would be mm-hmm. helpful. Do you have, is there a certain formula for it? I mean, I know it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but right, I'm trying to have not. people who may have an idea, you know, know how to actually set up these. Right. Well, one of the things that you need to think about is portability. Um, so if rocking, it, which, by the way, is very common for most human beings, Um, If that's part of it, we need to teach him to rock, even if he's not in the rocking chair. Um, And we need to, and and I think it's very individualized, and and you'll have to experiment around a little bit. If you do rocking and then deep pressure touch, teach the person to apply deep pressure to their own thighs, apply deep pressure to their own shoulders, um, apply deep pressure to their own wrists. You'll see as you start doing these things, oh, look, after he rocked for one minute and he applied deep pressures to shoulders, knees, and wrists, he's he's fine. He's chilled, you know. Then you'll know, well, that's enough for this person. And think about portability. Um, A friend of mine, her son relaxes very well if he has one of those tight spandex tubes to crawl into. Well, you can't do that in Kmart, <laughs> but you might need it in Kmart or some other big place, you know. And so we need right. to think about multiple routines. There's and a wonderful, there's a wonderful essential oil that I use through Young Living that my husband recommends to a lot of people. It's called Peace and Calming, mm-hmm. and that is a good way to help trigger memory of of a calming effect. Mm-hmm. And olfactory, the, the sense of smell, is the one sense that is not impaired in autism. It's so important for people to remember that the nose knows. 
And so if mom always wears a certain uh, scent and the, the student is used to that, maybe we're going to make um, a little thing with like a, a film canister with a, a piece of cotton in the bottom and a couple of drops of mom's scent on it. And part of the relaxation routine will be to open that and give it a good sniff. That's a great, a great suggestion. We have, we have to go I need to stop because you have so much to teach people, and I encourage everybody listening to call their school district and have them hire Barbara to come to their district to give a presentation to the teachers and the parents together as well as the aides, everybody all together, because she can do that, and she is absolutely fabulous. I've heard just rave reviews from um, teachers around the country. Address, uh, email address, or excuse me, website is barbaradoyle.com, B-A-R-B-A-R-A-D-O-Y-L-E.com, and her phone number is 217-793-9348. Barbara, thank you so much for being my guest today. You're so welcome, Betsy. It was fun. We'll be back with you all next week. Bye-bye. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks.